Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. I don't know anything about him, it's just a name and a number, but I'm going to write to him. And, and started writing letters. The first that I wrote was on the train going into uni. And, and I was like, okay, I'll just write about who I am. And, and then I sent that letter off. It was in red pen, I still remember it, on like some rough paper. And then he wrote back and, and he shared that he was like 21 years of age and he had studied law in Afghanistan and he was teaching, he was, his English was a bit more advanced than the other people around him. So he was helping them with English and helping people with computer skills and things in detention. Hey, it's Adam Murray here. This week I get to interview my sister. She has led a pretty amazing life, I have to say. Different stages of my life, I've been both pretty challenged by the way she's lived and pretty inspired by the way she has lived or the way she's living. I think the challenging was probably more earlier in my life where I didn't quite get where she was coming from and probably wasn't that awake myself. And more lately, it's been quite inspiring to see the things she's got up to and the way she lives. You'll hear all about it, but some of the things she, she has done in her life is She's really open-hearted in the way she helps people. She's travelled quite a lot. She's worked in disaster areas. She's engaged with such a diversity of cultures. She's big on well-being and uh, connection and living frugally, but living in a also a very rich and meaningful way. I love my sister a lot, and it was great to talk with someone who I have known so well for such a long period of time, but also to get to know her even better through the context of a chat like this. Yeah, without any further ado, thanks for joining me today and I hope you enjoy listening to Rachel Murray on the subtle disruption of wholehearted living. Cool, Rach. So good to be sitting here. My first question is always, where have you chosen for our conversation and why did you choose it? We have chosen, we're sitting here in your lounge room, which is quite a significant space. I, I feel like... I chose this because I have a two-year-old son, or he's nearly two, and it was a space where Ollie could look after Tully at mum and dad's house and we could have a bit of space for this conversation. Yeah. I also, just because you've asked that question and looking around this room, there are a lot of memories for me in this room because this whole apartment which is attached to mum and dad's place used to be our grandparents. Nanny and Grandpa, yep. and I remember coming in here and having really long conversations with them and asking them question after question about their life, sitting on the couch when it was that way, yeah, before Nan got sick. And, yeah, it was a place, I remember Mum would always be like, where's Rachel? And she'd know immediately that I was down here talking to them. Yeah. So it was a beautiful space for me for a time. Yeah. And now I feel like it's nice that our middle brother was able to live here when he was in a transition and now you're in here as you go through a transition and that this space can be 
a place that represents what family can be, which is deep support for each other. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Mum and Dad have been living here for what, about 20 years now, over 20 years now. Mm. It's been a pretty important place, really, mm. giving them the opportunity to look after Mum's parents for a significant period of time, mm. allowing us to have that kind of relationship where we could drop in and see our grandparents. Yeah. And then, yeah, those other things that you've talked about as well, enabling us to then, you know, go out and leave the home and then come back and you've, I guess, lived with mum and dad for shorter periods of time. Yeah. As well. Yeah. 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 What do you remember about those conversations with Nanny and Grandpa? I remember Grandpa would always give me advice. Like, he would always say things like, Rachel, you've got to learn something new every day. And he'd talk about how he got to be the CEO of Diamond Valley and and stories from his work and his friendships. And I remember with Nanny, it was always, I wanted to talk to her about her life in Canada. Yeah. And she'd talk to me about walking through the snow to get to school and, yeah, just big big dinners with all her family and just little, little anecdotes of her life. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was always craving this wisdom from elders. It's been a theme in my life. Yeah. I've always seen elders as having a lot of a lot of things that I want to learn from. I want to. Were they the first people that you started to do that with? Yeah, I think they were, and and Granddad, and I've always just been drawn to older people. Like even wherever I live, I find neighbours that that play that are kind of like grandparent roles for me. Yeah. And yeah, I just always enjoyed. Conversations. Yeah. Actually, do you know what? I remember I used to sing as a kid in a nursing home, and afterwards there was this lady Nancy that I would just go, and I loved Nancy, yeah. and I'd just sit with her and talk to her about her life for ages. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably where the beginning. When you're in high school. Yeah, and I feel like in a way I would love to have been at an age where I thought oh, I had to record those stories of. Granddad and Grandma was a bit young, like when she died. From I was only seven, I think. Mm. Yeah, to have those stories of Nanny and Grandpa recorded would be quite special now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they would. There'd be a lot more opportunities. Like technology makes that much more accessible to do now yeah. as well. It's kind of like they were just at that cusp where it wasn't. You needed a tape recorder. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon you would have probably asked Nanny and Grandpa some pretty interesting questions as well. Do you yeah. remember asking them any, any really curly questions? Um, I can't, like, specifically. I remember sometimes Grandpa would just say, no, nah, I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I did. But actually, something that I do remember is the last time Grandad came to visit here, asked if, I, if I'd take him out for a walk. And we went to Heidi to the art gallery and we walked around the gardens and it was there that he shared with me all about his wedding night with Grandma. Oh, really? Yeah. And he shared, like, how, you know, he was, like, really excited and they went to Tasmania on a group holiday for the honeymoon and on on the wedding night 
he, you know, it was the first time they made love and he, he was very excited so it didn't last very long and he always felt really embarrassed about that. <laughs> and, and then he shared that actually Grandma got pregnant on that wedding night. Oh, my gosh. And she, um, she had a little, she was pregnant and she went through to about eight and a half months. And, um, and he was out in the chem- he was at the chemist and she was at home and she'd had a hot bath and had, he was a bit upset because she'd lifted something heavy. And, and that day she actually gave birth to this little girl. Yeah. And she came out and she wasn't breathing and, and it was a shock, you know, and she was on these white sheets and this little baby girl was born and Grandma didn't know what to do. And, and she died and they mm. called the doctor and she couldn't get in touch with Grandad. Mm. And they called the doctor and the doctor came and, and he told them to wrap this little baby girl up in newspaper, put her in the bin and never, ever talk about her again. Mm. And that was the best thing for them to do to be able to move on because they were both devastated. And Grandad told me this story as we were walking around that garden and... It was surreal. It was so surreal. But he said to me, I would have called her Mary. And, yeah, I feel like that was a real gift that he gave to share that little piece of history of our family. Yeah. This life that never made it to existence. But it also enabled me to understand Grandma's pain. And she was a little bit more reserved and and had a lot of pride. And, you know, we know she came from poverty. Yeah, it was really, it was a real, a really eye-opening experience to to be told that story to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dad I'm, didn't even know. No. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'd really like to honor Mary and plant a tree on this land for her. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. Our Aunt Mary that we never knew. Yeah. It's funny how, well, I guess maybe it was a sign of the times, you know, to, you know, let's package that up and pretend it never happened yeah. and not talk about it ever again and then for it to come out, what, kind of 60 years later. I feel like people, you have a way of getting people to open up like that. <laughs> I've been told that a few times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think that is? Uh, I feel a deep love of humanity yeah. and I always have and a deep curiosity about people's lives. And I, I love listening to stories. I love stories. And yeah, I feel like because I listen, and as Ollie says, like, oh, that was a prickly question to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Ollie's your husband, yeah. Ollie's my husband, yeah. And I, yeah, I'll ask the hard questions. I'll ask the questions that I'm not scared to go there because I I know that I love being asked those questions. Like I love someone taking that time and interest in who I am as a person. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I enjoy being the receiver of that to enable someone else to share too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I feel like that's how it happens on buses, on trains and... Yeah, yeah. 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 I think I remember Grandpa you telling me something that Grandpa told you about, and maybe it was kind of in high school when you'd had a few boyfriends and a few breakups, and Grandpa was saying, oh, don't be, 
it's kind of like telling you not to be so open-hearted or yeah, something. Yeah, he did. Yeah, 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 I do remember that. He said, I wear my heart on my sleeve. Yeah. And he said, I have to, yeah, learn how to protect myself and, and not give my heart away to everybody. And I don't think you took that advice. No. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it served you well not to take it? Yeah, that was one piece of advice from him. I'm very grateful I didn't take yeah, I've always been told that I'm too sensitive as well, or too open, too open. Yeah. Yeah, I have been hurt and I've loved deeply and, and lost with a lot of pain, love. But I feel like that's enabled me to feel things deeply and to go on this journey that's enabled me to be ready to really open up to Ollie, who is my husband, who... He's the first person in my life that I felt like, yes, I want to commit to this and I want to give everything to. And and that's been an incredible journey so far with him. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like if I took his advice, I wouldn't be in this situation with Ollie that I'm in now. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess the other side of that, you might have saved yourself from some pain, but you kind of would have prohibited yourself from some amazing openness and joy. Yeah, and yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah. And taking big risks, you know, like going to Sudan to meet all Omar's family and getting engaged to him and, and having this incredible experience in Sudan that still shapes my life now. Yeah. I wouldn't have done that because I'm like, no, too risky, like can't open my heart. And yeah, I feel like having that open heart when I've travelled it's been so hard to leave people, like so many tears, but it, that's, that's a sign of, of what that, that connection was for me and what that experience was for me. Yeah. Yeah. You've travelled quite a bit. What do you, you know, probably more than we could talk about today. <laughs> yeah. But is there, like what's been, I guess, the most pivotal or shaping travel experience that you've had? Indonesia, like after the tsunami in Aceh, was very pivotal for many reasons, like working in a refugee camp with orphans. But Sudan for me, I think because I was engaged to Omar and and I was living... Uh, Omar was Sudanese? Omar was Sudanese. He was actually, well, he was from a tribe called Beni Ama, which is... They're on the border of Eritrea, Ethiopia and Sudan. Yeah. So they don't really identify as Sudanese, but he, he would actually call himself Eritrean because I think he, they're on the east side of Sudan. Yeah. But his family had fled from the Eritrean side across the border to Sudan, so technically they were Sudanese. Yeah. And, yeah, living with his family and being totally immersed in that culture and falling in love with the the people and the landscape and the experience with camels and camel milk and I just yeah it it it's in me that place is in me so yeah I feel like that's uh, yeah that's probably the one that I can recall and feel has the most impact but then going to Bangladesh when I was 19 was huge because it was so different and the first time I'd ever really travelled like that. And, yeah, that was a very key part too. Yeah. But there was something about Sudan that, yeah. Sudan was when you were a little bit older. Were you, yeah, uh, I was a bit older. I was like 24. Yeah. 
I just, it just connected. Like it just, I just loved that place. I loved the dancing and the music. You'd wake up and there'd be like drum bits and there'd be like drum bits and they're making coffee in the morning. And you'd walk down the road and someone had come out of hospital. So the tent was filled with women dancing and I'd go and join them dancing. And yeah. they were doing like ecstatic dancing and falling over and coming back up and, and, and conversations with Oma's mum who I just loved, and the desert. Yeah. Yeah, and sleeping on the roof with all the women. It was, it was very, I was, I was part of their family, so I think that, that makes a, a travel experience pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's a few themes there that you've talked about, which I think, I don't know if they started before or after, some of them probably started before, but one of them is, I guess, it was for Omar's family, a refugee family? Like, were they, yeah. yeah. And you yeah, talked yeah. a bit about that, and I know you've done quite a bit of work with refugees over mm. the years as well. Like, how, when did that start, and what kind of stuff have you done? Mm. I feel like the first, first example for me in my life of creating a relationship with someone from a migrant background was Esther and Mohan and they came from India and dad had met them and and he would take me around to visit them because they, they didn't know anyone and they were very fresh, they'd just been married. And I developed a really strong friendship with Esther, especially, and she would have been like 24 and I think I would have been about seven at the time. And I, she was pregnant and kind of went, I, I would go and visit her and help her when, when her baby Jonathan was born. And it was just a really, I just felt so loved. I think that's the thing for me. I felt so included and, and so accepted. And my whole life I've been searching, I think that's why I travelled so much, is because I've been searching for this sense of community and... Well, it's funny going back to family and support because as I was growing up, I, I actually didn't feel that supported by our family and I felt this strong sense that I needed to be fiercely independent, but I resented that at the same time. I'm really grateful for it now because it's given me really good skills of independence. And mm. But at the time, I was really resentful for not not having this kind of family that was there no matter what and and you helped each other through. and. And when I was with Esther and Mohan, I, I saw a different way of relating and a different way of being, and I got very curious. And, and that kind of set me forth on this journey of searching for, searching for that thing that I was craving. And so, you know, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Indonesia, all these, these cultures that I was able to experience, I saw these things. And I remember there was one point where I came back and I, I could have, I was in a, a village in Indonesia, in Jakarta, like just out of Jakarta. And I could have stayed there. Like I felt like a part of me could have, could have moved away and lived there because I felt so, I felt so alive and I felt so loved. And, and I loved like the, like working on the fields and going and swimming in the waterfall and, just felt very connected to the elements as well. 
And I remember though, I came back and I had this really strong feeling. I'm like, okay, I could go away and, and run away from my culture and run away from who I am and go and live somewhere like that. But I want to create it here. And I looked around as we we're coming through customs and I saw all these people from all different countries and I'm like, I can travel in Melbourne. Mm. Like all this culture and all this richness is here. I don't need to go anywhere. And I knew that if I ran away from who I was and who, yeah, I had grown up to be in my culture, that I'd be running for the rest of my life. And so then from that point on, my journey changed to going, how can I create that here in my life here and how can I heal with my family? Yeah. And, yeah, Omar was a key part of that because his big thing was like, you can do all the amazing things in the world, but if you don't love your family and if you're not there for your family in a really practical way, none of it counts. Mm. And that's, that struck a chord with me. And I thought, yep, I've got to get things right with, with my family and, and heal myself through that journey. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so you kind of decided that. Because I think I remember you doing that with other families here yeah. too. Before yeah, before I was yeah. even, yeah, when I was young, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I would. I would be adopted mm. by these families. Mm. And it's interesting, like, I remember, you know, Esther's family when I was growing up, I would just spend all my time there, any time that I could, because I loved them so much. And they were Dutch, from a Dutch background. A different Esther, yeah. A different Esther. Yeah, yeah. not Esther and Mohan Esther. Esther, my best friend in primary school. And I remember Caroline, her mum was Greek and her dad was mm. from England. And I remember... Yeah, just loving being in their family. And, and then Tristan, my, my kind of first proper boyfriend in high school, like just loving his family and, and getting, yeah, as you said, like becoming a part of these families that were strong. And I've always been curious about how a strong, supportive family works. What, what are those elements that make that happen? Yeah. 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 We'll come back to a couple of things, but going back to refugees. So, <laughs> so you, how did you end up working? I think you wrote a letter at some point. Yeah, I was really, I, I was 18 and I had started uni at RMIT. And at that time, I was going to a lot of rallies and getting really inspired about political issues and just found myself like fighting and fighting against this, this policy or this government or and and then I was just like I remember I had a, a really good friend who's still a really good friend now Rainy and I remember we were talking like I feel like there's some some energy in these rallies that doesn't sit totally right with with both of us and and we were like it feels like there's so much anger like we want to create rather than fight mm. and she actually got a list from a woman called Kate who had a list of all the numbers. This is a time when the tamper had happened yeah. and many refugees were in Nauru. And she got a number, a list of all the numbers of these refugees and their names and, and she was starting a letter writing campaign. And Rainy and I were like, oh, let's do this. And I remember I was sitting at her kitchen bench and looking through all these names and I was like, oh, 
they were like Ali, Ali, Muhammad, Muhammad. I was like, how do I choose? Like, who, do, you know, you can't write to everyone. And then this name jumped out at me and it was Mustafa. I was like, ah, oh, Mustafa Najib. Okay, I'm going to write to him. I don't know anything about him. It's just a name and a number, but I'm going to write to him. Hmm. And, and started writing letters. The first that I wrote was on the train going into uni. And, and I was like, okay, I'll just write about who I am. And, and then I sent that letter off. It was in red pen. I still remember it on like some rough paper. <laughs> and then he wrote back and, and he shared that he was like 21 years of age and he had studied law in Afghanistan and he was teaching. He was, his English was a bit more advanced than the other people around him. So he was helping them with English and helping people with computer skills and things in detention mm. and, and I just wrote to him and shared that I really disagreed with the government policy and that I, I was so sad that he was in detention centre and especially because of his past experiences and, and he, we, you know, we had this dialogue that went on for about a year and then he, he was released, like he had Julian Burnside fighting for, for him and a few others. And they were given five-year temporary protection visas. And he was either going to go to Western Australia, to Perth or Melbourne. And I remember getting this call and he's like, I'm out and I don't know where I'm going yet. It's either Perth or Melbourne. And, and then he's like, and then another phone call, I'm in Melbourne. I was like, wow. <laughs> and the first time I met him, he's like, oh, there's this welcome ceremony for us at the Fitzroy Learning Network. And so Rini and I both went and her, she hadn't developed her, her pen pal hadn't lasted in the same way. Mm. Yeah, not knowing there was like a sea of faces and having no idea who Mustafa was and just kind of like so many of us that there was no way to really know. Yeah. Like, How am I, I'm going to leave not even knowing who he is. Like, yeah. And then we were listening to the speeches and right at the end the woman who is the MC said, oh, and now Mustafa Najib's going to share. And I was oh, going to see him. And I was thinking, maybe it's that guy, maybe it's that guy. And then, and then Mustafa got up and shared. And so I got to actually see and hear yeah. my pen pal. And from that moment on, like we spoke afterwards and he's become, or he became one of my best friends and he still is today. Yeah. A very, very dear friend, like a brother yeah. to me. We've shared a lot together as he's gone through his journey and now we both have little sons. So Oski's about, Oscar's his son and he's about six months older than Tully. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's really lovely to see them play and to see where we both are. Yeah. They're like he'll be a family friend forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And he's married to a beautiful Australian girl. Yeah. Now and they're about to have their second baby. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess, yeah, those kind of experiences, loving cross-cultural yeah. interactions for me, that was, I just always have loved cross-cultural interactions. And I think part of that is being able to see things in a new way, getting mm. different perspectives and, and knowing there's no right way to do anything. Yeah. That there are just different ways. And that was really... Yeah, so I could choose. I had this freedom to choose how what I wanted to take and leave behind. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can um, maybe we can fast forward a little bit and talk about how all those things. And we, like you touched on camels a little bit, but you know, camels and 
family and community and cross-cultural, cross-cultural learning and, and different ways of being. How are they, what are you putting together now? Like where is your, where's your direction taking where's you? My direction yeah. yeah, so it's interesting. We, we are in the process now of setting up a camel dairy. Which was funny because it was actually you who was like, why don't you do this, Rachel? And that was when I was just, I always had this dream after coming back from Sedan because I loved camel milk and I knew how good it was for you. And I felt amazing when I was drinking it. And, And I saw how quickly when I was in Abu Dhabi, how quickly it went off the shelves. And when I asked my friend who lived there, I was like, what, why does everyone really love this? Because actually the expats are the ones buying it from Europe and America, especially. Yeah. And he's like, Rachel, you should do this in Australia. Like he kind of threw the idea out. You know, you'd make a fortune joking. Yeah. And I was like, ah, whatever, Kamal. Like, and that, that I think that idea always stayed with me. And I feel like, I mean, not to make heaps of money by no means, but for me, I always felt like, I learned a lot I learn a lot from people, but I have a lot to learn from animals as well and and a different mode of being. I'm really I'm really intrigued to learn animal husbandry in a really deep way, as in like for my life. Yeah. We we look after two goats at the moment. We're part of a goat milking cooperative. And those goats have taught me so much. I feel like, yeah, my confidence has grown so much in terms of interacting with animals. And so this idea was just bubbling away about camels and I could see it. Some, a part of how I've always worked is being able to see how one, one thing could tackle so many different issues mm. in a way. Mm. So rather than just going, okay, like camel milk is good for your health, but it's like, well, actually... If, if we do, if we have camels, like, they're amazing for transportation, they're drought resistant, their milk is so good for you, they eat weeds so they can help other farmers around, they can bring back beautiful memories and nostalgia, feelings of nostalgia for refugee and migrants who've come from those parts, mm. not just to see camels, but to taste their milk and, again, and, and, and also it's this way that, that we can bring people together. So at the moment I'm running leadership courses and I'm working in one high school in Bensdale. Ollie and I have been working in that school for four years in Gippsland and also working with refuge, really newly arrived refugee migrants like who have come in the last year, most of them, a lot from Syria and Iraq. And, and hearing their stories and after we finished they're always like Rachel, Ollie, like we wish you had a place where we could come and visit and and do more of this work. Like we wish you had a school, we could do this all the time. And and that kind of give, giving another idea, you know, like all these things. And and so I was telling you, Adam, you should get into camel milk and you're like, I think you're really passionate about this, Rachel. You should do it. And Ollie looked at me and he's like, why don't we do it? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I love about Ollie is like we're both both of us are up for like crazy yeah. wild ideas and just to see what happens. Yeah. And so at the moment we're about to buy the farm we with two other couples and 
Ollie's done this really incredible farm plan looking at cell grazing, so you're moving that you're moving the animals really quickly through each small paddock as uh, opposed to letting them go for ages. Yeah. So they actually work, they they prune the grass, but they don't take it down too low and they manure and allow new growth to come up at the same time. So mm. they actually start cultivating the soil in a really rich way yeah. that enables it to to regenerate. So they the animals getting the animals to do the work for you. Mm. I love permaculture. Like this is a big part of permaculture and I've learned so much through and yeah, and part of this dream is having camels, having a space where people can come and we can run courses and a big dream of mine as well is creating a an area which is where actually this this started from this idea started from my friend Nadia, who's from Somalia, and her mum one day had said, Oh, I just would love to build a mud hut. And she was going through all these memories of using cow dung as a kid and, and making these mud huts, mixing it with straw. And I was like, nah, if we had a land, your mum could totally do this. And, and so I was like, this idea started to come into being, which was creating, having land where people from different cultures and communities could come and, and build traditional dwellings. Yeah. Mm. And teach their young, you know, teach the the kids and the next generations who haven't been brought up in those cultures with those traditional building methods. And teach, you know, people, not just their own families, but teach anyone who wanted to learn. And then have a space that was kind of decked out with all their things that they, that reminded them of home and smells and different, like burning wood or incense or and, and having fire where they could make cups of tea on the fire and, and having this, these spaces where the camels are walking past and there are goats and veggie gardens and plants from these cultures around where people could come and just be and feel like they were back at home for a while. Yeah. And they could have, you know, little events there or they could teach other people about their culture. If someone was going to a country where they wanted to learn the language, they could, you know, have a job teaching them the language and giving cross-cultural training in a real setting. Yeah. And, and empowering and drawing on the strengths that that culture has to give or those people, that people have to give. Because that's something that I saw. I was like, these people I'm working with, they do not need pity. <laughs> these are strong, resilient inspiring people who come to Australia with so many skills. Mm. I want to be a part of creating a space where those skills can be, you know, not, I, I can't think of the word, like captured or, or can be enhanced or encouraged yeah. to grow and even expand. And, and I want to be a part of learning from these people yeah. and from, from all kinds of people. And so, and that that learning can be reciprocal, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like, yeah, that's a key part of this as well, is creating a space with a bit of an international village. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's beautiful. Like, Oma's cousin and aunties are in Melbourne, and I've shared with them, Oma's, Oma's not alive anymore. Just to make that clear for this interview, yeah, he was murdered a yeah. few years ago, which was really sad. Yeah. 
but I feel like he really lives on in me and he's taught me so much that I'll carry, carry forth. Yeah. But his auntie, she's just like, oh, yes, when is this happening? I'm a part of it. And, and everyone I, I've spoken to is just like, yep, I'm a part of it. Mustafa's like, I'll build a tandoor to make Afghani bread. And, <laughs> and people were like, they come with their own dream. Yeah. They come with their own things that they miss. And so that's, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Because it's like, wow, now this thing that has been bubbling away for 10 years is actually going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. The camels are a key part of that. The leadership's a key part of that. Yeah. And, and going in with, with two other couples to build that community and to do it together, saying, we don't need to do this alone. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And yeah. to bring it back to... This place that we're in now, like you're spending a lot of time here building some really cool things and I guess honing your skills a bit for that yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We feel like this is like our training ground at Mum and Dad's. Yeah, building the glass house and the permaculture swales, planting them out with fruit trees and veggies and catch, capturing the water in the pond that, run off, that runs off from the neighbour's house. Yeah. Yeah, and we've just learnt so much. I feel like, you know, if we make, if we can kind of make these mistakes here and learn as we go. Yeah. That mean, yeah, when we go, when we're on the farm, we'll kind of come with a lot more experience. Without leaving mum and dad with a disaster. No, well. not leaving them <laughs> with a disaster, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I feel like the mistakes or the things we're learning are, are more around planning, like that things take longer than you expect. Yeah. Or that to do something really well, sometimes you have to go back and redo something. Yeah. And, and getting your organisation right, like getting the shed really clear, the wood, like getting all mm. that stuff helps yeah. enable the things to happen, like putting the time in the organisation yeah. of your tools, of your materials. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can, and, then, and also like how to reuse things. Like how to see things that are deemed waste and turn them into something really special. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are masters at that. <laughs> <laughs> like those sleepers, those um, garden edging that Dad wanted to put into the skip. Yeah. Like turning them into steppers for the path. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that looked really cool. Yeah. yeah. No waste policy. I got a, a few more questions for you. Probably one of them is, well, there's two questions that I always wrap up with and that I reckon there might be some others that pop up as well. But anyway, I'll ask you those ones. But the first one's about, so the podcast is called Subtle Disruptors and it's about, you know, making changes that have a positive impact and the kind of changes that everyone can make. So is there something that, you know, you've got your, the things that you want to be working on and you're putting those into place now, but is there something quite different to those that you daydream about? One day I'd like to be part of, you know, changing that or I wish someone would, you know, grab that by the scruff of the neck and, you know, suddenly disrupt that. Is there anything mm. that comes to mind? I feel like when those things come to my mind, I'll tend to, like do it yeah, in yeah. a way like yeah. you know we just found out series fair food have moved just around the corner and they don't have anyone to take their compost so we're like okay let's buy you and take their compost and their, their not their compost waste vegetable products and we'll turn it into a compost yeah so I feel like 
when I see something like that, I just tend to do it, which is kind of sometimes I might try to do too much, yeah. which is a which is what Ollie's really beautiful at bringing to my life is spaciousness and realizing that that me leading a spacious, relaxed existence is a key part of subtle disruption. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I just feel like I'm around really people who are doing exactly what you say. Like we live in a community of people who have moved into Heidelberg West and are, are transforming the suburbs of what's possible in the suburbs. And Ollie and I have learned so much from being a part of that community. Yeah, my big thing is around waste. Like, I wish there was no waste, yeah. you know, like using rubbish creatively or I just feel like if we had this mindset, everything would be so different mm. if, if you weren't able to chuck anything out. Yeah. You know, you had to think about what you consumed and how you consumed it and what you're going to do with it afterwards. Yeah. I feel like this world would be a really beautiful place for all of us to live in. Yeah, I, I remember that becoming very clear to me when I was at a permaculture farm once, actually, mm. them talking about how they don't have rubbish collected there. Mm. And so be very careful about what you bring in here because mm. we have to dispose of it here. And mm. they had, like, a collection of the plastic that had come onto mm. the property in one corner. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, if, if I had to dispose of everything that I bought... Yeah. ...not in the bin, yeah. but had to... In your space. Yeah, yeah, in my space. Like, that would dramatically change yeah. how I purchased what I purchased. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be so much more mindful and, I guess, honest in a way too. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's so, like, there's a cathartic aspect to putting something in the bin and going out the front and yeah. then, oh, I've done my job. Yeah, yeah. I've been organised and put it in the yeah, bin. Yeah, I've been an upright citizen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think... For you, there's um, like another, like a, maybe a, a similar thing to that is like you seem to have always been able to live on not very much money as yeah. well. And maybe that's tying back to the spaciousness <laughs> that you're talking about as well. But I think you haven't, as a result, you haven't had to maybe do work that you didn't really want to do. Mm. And that's allowed you to do the things that you're doing yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I feel like I made that decision wasn't even, I feel like I didn't even have a choice, really. I just was like, I'm not going to spend most of my life doing something I don't want to do for money to buy a house that I'm not even going to spend much time in. Yeah. That just felt absurd. So, yeah, for me, it's just always been following the passion and following where I see a need, like with setting up an organisation for international students and local students to meet there was a need that I saw at uni. And so I was like, okay, I can do something about that and I can get people together to help because I can't do it alone. Yeah. And, and then something happened. Like creating something from nothing yeah. is what I'm passionate about. Yeah. And seeing what's possible when people come together and they're committed to making something real. Yeah. And so, yeah, I feel like that, not needing much money, it's you start, you live, you learn to live creatively. You learn and you appreciate so much more what you have. Yeah. I read that book, Frugal Hedonism, and I was like, ah, this is who I am. It was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, cool, this is a thing, yeah. you know, and that felt really good because, 
yeah, I've had friends that are like, Rachel, how do you travel? Like, how do you get your money? Like, we just can't work it out. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, it's, you know, it's when I see a hair tie on the ground, I'll pick it up and that saves me all the, you know, just making up stuff for them. But yeah. Yeah, but that, that thing of just knowing that you actually don't need very much and that when you do things creatively and which tend to be cheaply, yeah. Then, yeah, you got you actually have so much. I feel very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Holly and I are like we don't have much money, but man, we feel wealthy. Yeah. And what does what does wealthy mean? What is it? Yeah. Why do you think you feel wealthy? We have everything that we need. Yeah. We eat amazingly delicious food that's organic. We have great friends that support us and we share resources. You know, we live in a community where someone will drop in and be like, do you want dinner tonight? We've just cooked some dinner. Do you want to come over for dinner? Yeah. And so we have a thriving community around us. And we have a son that we both get to spend so much time with. We get to spend so much time as a family in these foundational years. Mm. And... And we have fun. <laughs> we have fun doing what we do. Yeah. We have fun dreaming and we have fun creating those dreams. Mm. Yeah. And you're well. I think that's probably the other part of feeling. Healthy? Yeah. Yeah. Healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I practice yoga five or six days a week. And I've been doing that for 10 years, Ashtanga yoga. And that's like my, my pillar. Yeah. That gives me space. To, to work through traumas in the body, to, to breathe. I have a great teacher, Owen, who's really guided me during that time to heal, heal so I can be well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've had some good teachers along the way. Yeah. Vicky, my singing teacher. So like, Owen said to me the other day, I was talking to him about the work I'm doing with these refugee migrant in this creative leadership course and he just said, Rach, if you care, you're there. You know, if people feel that care yeah. and they respond and they feel like it's that simple sometimes just to care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the last question I ask is about something subtle or small that you've done or you do in your own life that sustains you or has had an important impact that would be interesting for other people to hear about as mm. well. And you've mentioned a few already, but is there, mm. is there a new one or maybe you want to extrapolate on something you've already mentioned? Something small I do for me, is that the question? Yeah. yeah. I, yoga is definitely that for me. Yeah. Yoga and meditation and carving out that space. I feel like that really helps me be the mum I want to be and the, and the partner I want to be to Ollie because when I feel fulfilled, I feel like I can give so much more. Mm. And, yeah, and then what are other things? I feel like just, like, little things, like, instead of, going to a music class for Tully. I was like, oh, we, we both sing and play guitar. We'll start a music class. Yeah. And Jacinta and I started it, and now Ollie and I are running 
little sirens and and we have this really lovely community there are like you know 10 families that come each week and and it's like a really lovely little play group where we get to do singing and songs and storytelling and I and I watch Tully thrive in that environment and mm. and I thrive because as I said it's like it's working on on Tully Tully getting music input Ollie and I working together creating this community of of lovely friends around us and lovely chats and inspiration afterwards mm. That like just doing little things like that in my life, just yeah, this is possible. Let's do it, and then seeing it through hardship. Like it's not just always easy, mm. but seeing it eventuate. I feel like those are little things that I do for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Gardening too. Yeah. Getting out in the garden. Yeah. And what about being in a woman's women's circle as well? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I've been in an incredible women's circle for. I think it's around ten years. I'm not. I'm not too. I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's nine or ten years. And we've met every month during that time, and it's a really incredible group of women that we've gone through so much together, and shared every month. We all share what we're going through, and and we share our intentions for the month to come. Mm. And oh, I feel so held by that group of women. Yeah. yeah, we've seen each other go through childbirth and um, marriage, and now kid, now teenagers are coming into the picture, teenage children, and I feel like it's I I get to learn from those women who've who've gone before me, and then share my experiences too. So yeah, it's a really sacred space for me, those women's circles. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was some awesome things, Rage. Thanks for. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for being Pleasure. part of it. It's been awesome. <laughs> Lovely to be part of Subtle Disruptors. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or through on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.